0: In the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Please be seated. The parable of the prodigal son needs absolutely no introduction. It's a biblical story so iconic and relatable that even non-Christians are familiar with the subject matter and the lessons it teaches. Sure, maybe the more nuanced parts of this parable can be overlooked or misunderstood by non-Christians, but this parable's theme of estrangement and reconciliation are unmistakable to Christian and non-Christian alike. But for as iconic as this parable is, there's a flip side to its popularity. You see, we can be so familiar with this parable that if we're not careful, we'll replace its true message, its true point, with something else. And please, whatever you are thinking right now, do not think this is my way of debating what proper biblical exegesis is. That's not at all what I'm trying to do. My point is simple as this. The parable of the prodigal son has a message so beautiful and central to the gospel of Jesus that if you correctly understand this parable, then you correctly understand the gospel itself. And so we would do well to be careful here. So what's the best way to approach this parable? How can we be sure that we understand it in all of its complexity and drama? How can we be sure to let this parable speak for itself without reading our experiences into it? The best way I know of is to understand the text and the context of the story around it. And the parables that directly precede the prodigal son, I think, give us the exact framework we need. You see, the meaning of every story is built upon understanding the background of the story, how the characters are connected to one another, how the relationships between characters affect the progression of the story itself. And if you don't understand those kinds of things... You can see the apex of the story unfold. You can get all of the facts right, and you can still miss the true meaning of what you've seen. Here's an example. Imagine if someone described the ending, the apex of the Lord of the Rings, like this. There was this uh, little short guy, and he threw some sort of jewelry into a volcano, and then evil was defeated, and everybody lived happily ever after. Technically, that is true, right? That is a true description of the ending of the Lord of the Rings. But that description of the climax of Lord of the Rings, while technically true, while having all of the brute facts correct, for as true as it may be, that description possesses no apprehension of the meaning of the story. And if we're not careful, we'll do the same exact thing with this parable. We'll get all of the facts right, but we'll fail to grasp the true meaning. So here's what we're gonna do. Let's look at the parables leading up to our gospel text and let's see the context that it gives us. Look at the beginning of Luke 15, starting with the parable of the lost sheep. So at the very beginning of this chapter, you'll see that there's two groups that have come to Jesus. Both of them have gathered to listen to Jesus. One group is composed of tax collectors and other assorted sinners. The other group is composed of Pharisees and Scribes. The second group, the Pharisees and Scribes, they are really, really upset with Jesus. They're upset because Jesus, who is supposed to be this really respectable guy, this teacher of Israel, is defiling himself by receiving and then eating with sinners. The Pharisees and Scribes are disgusted with him. They're disgusted that Jesus seems to value what they see as worthless. And Jesus understands this. He understands what they're thinking. And so he responds to that exact concern with the parable of the lost sheep. In this parable, Jesus says, let's say you have a hundred sheep and then one of them wanders off. Everyone knows that you leave the 99 and you go after the one that's lost. And you look for that lost sheep until you find it. Now The Pharisees knew this was true. They knew that no shepherd worth his salt would just let one of his sheep wander away and not go after it because he had 99 more. No, a good shepherd would go after even just one lost sheep, regardless of how many other sheep he had. Jesus continues in this parable and says this, And when he has found the sheep, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, and he says to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. The Pharisees would also have known that to be true. Of course it would please the shepherd when he found his lost sheep. It was his lost sheep. But the friends and neighbors of the shepherd would rejoice as well. Not because the sheep belonged to them. They would rejoice with the shepherd because they loved what the shepherd loved. They loved the shepherd himself. No sane person would detest the shepherd for looking for his lost sheep. No sane person would think that the shepherd's rejoicing was inappropriate when he found it. No, this is what a shepherd would do. This is who a shepherd is. In this parable, Jesus is telling the Pharisees, he's just like that shepherd. He's the shepherd of all Israel, the one who is gathering the wayward sheep, the one who's bringing those sheep that were lost back into the fold. This is the very reason he has come. This is the very essence of who he is. And if the Pharisees only see scandal when the shepherd gathers sheep, if they see Jesus is morally compromised because he's searching for sinners and calling them to repentance, if they fail to rejoice with Jesus when a wayward sheep returns to the fold, then they don't see Jesus for who he is. And they don't see themselves for who they are either their entire view of reality is warped, it's upside down and backwards, and they're absolutely blind to it. The parable of the lost coin works in much the same way, with one small exception. In the parable of the lost coin, something of immense value has been lost. This isn't like losing one single sheep. This would be like losing your retirement account. The coin in this parable could have possibly been a part of this woman's dowry and losing even just one coin could have been disastrous for her. So the owner of the lost coin in this parable turns over heaven and earth, looking for what belongs to her. And the owner would stop at nothing until this valuable thing was recovered. In this parable, Jesus is telling the Pharisees When they look at those prostitutes and tax collectors, all they see is garbage. All they see is scandal and filth. But Jesus has a totally different view when he looks at them. When he looks at them, he sees something valuable. Jesus sees something that belongs to him. Something that was given to him by his fathers, by his father. These tax collectors and prostitutes were objects of immense value and they were lost and they weren't supposed to be. This coin isn't supposed to be in some dark and dusty corner shoved under a bed somewhere. No, it's rightful places with its owner and the owner will turn over heaven and earth. The owner won't stop until it's found. This is exactly what Jesus is doing in Israel. He's going into the darkest corners of the world and retrieving items of immense value. He is going into places forgotten by most and reclaiming what belongs to him. And if the Pharisees think it's scandalous to look for lost sheep, if they fail to rejoice over their return to the shepherd, if they think retrieving items of immense value makes Jesus unclean, then they're misunderstanding everything God is doing in front of their faces. The Pharisees are in the midst of the story. They are a part of the story themselves. And while they perceive the facts of the story, they seem to completely miss its meaning. And after saying all of this, Jesus then moves into the parable of the prodigal son. In this story, a man's youngest son takes his inheritance. He moves far away and the boy squanders every last dime. Broken alone, the boy finds himself homeless and starving. He's been driven so low that what food he has is shared with pigs. In this deplorable state, the boy realizes that his days can't be long on this earth. He knows he's going to die. But for as low as the boy may be, he can still remember his father. He still remembers that his father was a good man. He remembers that his father was the kind of man who even might forgive him. Maybe if the boy were to throw his feet, throw himself at the feet of the father, maybe the father would show him mercy. Maybe in the father's mercy, the boy could return home and live out his days as a servant. So the son gathers himself and he returns to his father. And the boy was right about who his father was. The father did show him mercy. The father did welcome his son home. But the father did not welcome him home as a servant. No, The prodigal son is received with all the pomp and celebration the father can muster. Rings are placed on his fingers, robes on his shoulders, and a feast is held to celebrate his return. The father brought his prodigal son back into his family, not as someone who is indebted to him, not as a servant, but as his son. And the reason the father acts in this way is because that's who the father is. He is the one who is ready to welcome home a rebellious son with nothing to offer the father but his own filth and emptiness. The father is the one who is ready to rejoice over the return of a son who was once dead but is now alive and welcome into the father's arms. In this parable, that is exactly who the father is. But there is one more person in this story, more to it than just the prodigal and the father, In this story, there's an older brother, and the older brother didn't see the return of his younger brother as a good thing at all. When the prodigal returned, the older brother was in the field, hard at work. He had been hard at work the entire time his younger brother was off doing God knows what. He had been hard at work on his father's estate for his whole life, and the younger brother, as far as he could remember, had been nothing but a lazy, good-for-nothing bum his whole life. So when the older brother, hard at work in the fields, heard the sounds of singing and rejoicing in the distance, when the sounds of joy at his younger brother's return reached his ears, what he heard was injustice. What he saw was unearned, undeserved reward. How could his father kiss and hug and celebrate such a reckless and degenerate person? How could his father ever love someone that was so careless and selfish, how could his father do such a thing as to welcome this boy back home? That good-for-nothing, low-down, dirty, younger brother of his was back, and his father seemed happy about it. And so the older brother marches straight to the father, tells him off. But the father responds to his oldest son's anger and says this, son, all that I have is yours. I've never held anything back from you. I've never kept anything from you. You want one of my goats? Man, take the goat. But son, understand this. This party I'm throwing for your younger brother, it isn't about condoning his past. This feast I'm throwing for your younger brother, it isn't about preferring him over you. I'm celebrating like this because I thought your younger brother was gone forever. I thought my son was dead. I thought your brother was dead. But he's not. He's come back. He's here. He's alive. How could a good father not celebrate that? But the older brother is unmoved. All the older brother sees when his father rejoices is scandal. All the older brother sees when his brother returns is the injustice of the younger brother's welcome. All the older brother can see is the sheer unfairness of being equal in the eyes of the father with such an immoral person as his younger brother. But here's the truth about the older brother. His righteous indignation and self-centeredness prevent him from seeing that his heart was not like the father's. The older brother didn't grieve like the father when his younger brother left home. The older brother most likely thought to himself good riddance. The thought of his younger brother being alone or dead didn't move him one bit. He was getting what he deserved. And I wonder... Was the older brother's heart moved at all when he saw his own father mourning the loss of his son? Did the older brother have any compassion whatsoever that his father was mourning? He certainly had no compassion for his sibling. He certainly disregarded everything the father did to respond to his son's return. But I wonder, was the older brother's heart moved at all when he saw his father grieving the loss of one of his children? Did he have any compassion for his father, or was his heart hard even then? We can only speculate, but what we do know is that the sight of his brother back from the dead only served to harden his heart further and enrage him more. In these three parables, Jesus is weaving together a story. He tells the Pharisees they don't They're missing the meaning of everything he's saying. He's not wrong for eating with sinners. This is why he's here. It's who he is. He's the shepherd of Israel gathering the lost sheep. And if the Pharisees loved the shepherd, they would rejoice over these wayward sheep returning. If the Pharisees loved the father, they would rejoice at the sight of their wayward brothers returning home. But they don't have hearts like that at all. Instead of having hearts like their father, the Pharisees have hearts like the older brother, a heart which is outraged that the father sees them as equal to their wayward brothers, equal to someone they think is beneath them in status, who's beneath them in worth, someone who is obviously undeserving of the father's love and attention. And here's what the older brother missed. His younger brother was a low life degenerate that ran out on his father, that is true. The younger brother was absent and estranged from the father. Yep, true. The younger brother was sensual and selfish and did not have the heart of the father. True, true, and true. The older brother never left his father's side. He never ran off and squandered anything. He was always diligently working on his father's estate. He was always with his father and did what his father asked. Yes, and yet for all of his hard work and diligence, for all of his physical closeness and proximity to the father, the older brother had the exact same problem as the younger. Neither had their father's heart. The older and the younger brother had the same exact problem. They just manifested their lostness in different ways. The younger was sensual and worldly. The older was self-righteous and calloused. And neither of those descriptions are descriptions of the father in this parable. And I think that's the exact point Jesus is making. Just because you don't commit the same sins your brother commits doesn't mean your heart is in any less need of redemption. Just because your brother's sins are more overt and obvious doesn't mean your sins that you commit behind closed doors or the sins that lay unseen in your hearts are in any less need of being forgiven. Neither the older or younger brother acted like their father. Neither of them loved like their father. Neither of them showed mercy or forgiveness like their father. Neither of these two sinful brothers had their father's heart. The only difference between the two brothers is the younger brother knew his heart was corrupt. The younger brother saw the chasm that now lay between him and his father, and the younger brother knew he was the cause of that separation. But the younger brother also knew that the father, by his mercy and forgiveness, could be the cause of their reunion.